Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we're talking about, uh, we're continuing his story, Lessons from the Old Testament, and I've entitled our message, The Mediator. This is a story you're probably uh, familiar with uh, from the life of Abraham. Did you know that there were two boats that responded to the Titanic when it was sinking? One boat, the Californian, was about 20 miles away. They turned off the radio about 10 minutes before the Titanic hit the iceberg. They saw rockets and flares shoot off in the distance. They couldn't figure out why another boat was shooting rockets and flares. They didn't turn on the radio to see why, and they did not investigate, and they were only 20 miles away. They saw the boat's lights turn off, figured they were just turning off their lights for the night. The crew of the Californian were so in maintenance mode with what they were already doing, they couldn't imagine the Titanic sinking. And for the rest of their lives, the crew of that ship, the Californian, had to wrestle with the fact that they allowed 1,500 people to die of hypothermia and drown. But there was another ship, the Carpathia. It was 58 miles away, three times the distance. Its radio was on, and when it got the call that the Titanic was sinking, it powered up all its engines, headed straight for the Titanic, navigating around icebergs in the night. It ran full power for three and a half hours. And when the crew showed up at the scene of the disaster, many had already died, but they saved 705 lives from the lifeboats. So about a third. 705 were saved, over 1,500 died that night but it was completely preventable. Not just because the Titanic shouldn't have been going that fast. I mean, it was preventable even after the iceberg hit the Titanic. It was preventable. The iceberg wasn't fatal. There was plenty of time for that first ship to get there, but it didn't respond. It needed to get between those 1,500 people and the icy Atlantic. It did not. Now, I don't think there are better parallels to the need to reach people with the gospel and make them aware of Jesus Christ and eternity than there is with the Titanic. It's used often in sermons. The parallels are obvious. People without Jesus need someone to get between them and eternity. They need a mediator, a go-between, someone to get between them. Today, around the world... More than 5,000 people groups, not 5,000 people, 5,000 people groups, are without an indigenous Christian church in their culture, according to recent data from the Joshua Project. That's nearly 2 billion out of 8 billion people on the planet, more than a quarter of the world's population, that live in a group without a self-sustaining gospel movement. There's nothing in their culture that represents sort of churches that, that can send people out to give them the gospel. The 10 largest unreached people groups are in Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, Turkey, and Algeria. Missiologists, the people who study these issues and try to solve them, say that cross-cultural missions are more effective than near-neighbor evangelism to share the gospel with people who've never heard it. 
So that's what they're saying is we still, those groups, a lot of groups don't, but those groups still actually need missionaries from other cultures to come in and to give them the gospel. Once you get a certain base established in a country, a couple of percent that's Christian, then those countries tend to be self-sustaining. They can raise their own nationals, train them, and so on. And then Westerners or others are just needed more in seminaries and colleges to teach them how to do that. But in those situations, they still need missionaries. But only about 4% of global missionaries go to places where there are no churches. Think about that. Only 4% of missionaries are actually going to completely unreached people groups from where the gospel hasn't gone, Christianity Today, 2021. Two billion people need a mediator. Someone to get between them and a life or eternity outside of Jesus. It's one of the absolute essentials of our belief system. I mean, we're not polytheists that believe any God will do. We're not universalists that believe everyone's getting to heaven no matter what. We believe the words of Jesus. We don't want to believe the words of Jesus on this, but we believe Jesus is God and his word matters. We wish he didn't say it, but he did. There's one way, there's one source of truth, there's one path to eternal life. He said it right before he left the planet. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It does make sense philosophically because as we all know, the world's four major religions disagree on all kinds of things. So this view that they can all be right and there is no absolute truth just doesn't make sense because they all disagree with each other. And at the end of the day, something must be true but a narrow way offends the prevailing culture because in the culture nobody wants to believe in absolute truth, no one way, but the Bible couldn't be clearer. The reality is we are asked by Jesus to put ourselves between God and his judgment and our fellow man and help them to know how to know God. I love this story. An understanding atheist I love a good atheist. You'll understand in a moment. Angel Eduardo argues as an atheist that keeping our beliefs to ourselves while avoiding confrontation and promoting harmony is actually harmful and immoral. Beliefs, he says, are the engines of our actions. They're foundational to how we think and behave, and they have consequences. He admits when atheists tell Christians and people of other religions to keep their beliefs to themselves, they don't really grasp what they're actually asking people to do. We rarely think about this from the perspective of a believer. For them, he writes, every encounter is of paramount importance. They, believers, are truly convinced that you're in danger and they possess the keys to salvation. Their proselytizing or evangelism is a moral act even when we as atheists consider it a nuisance. However misguided or wrong they might be, he's talking about me and you, their actions are motivated by a desire to make our lives and afterlives better. It's hard to imagine how the consciences of the ethically devout are burdened by every skeptic they've failed to convert. How much worse would that guilt be if they'd instead been unwilling to try? Eduardo wants atheists and skeptics to be more understanding. I'm thinking of putting him on the platform with me sometime and interviewing him. I like this guy. Imagine us atheists indifferently watching, that was the joke by the way, Imagine us atheists indifferently watching the religious waste their lives believing nonsense. What would it say about us if we didn't try to talk them out of it? 
to help them save what little time they have left on this mortal coil because we've chosen to keep our beliefs or unbelief to ourselves. Sure, we're being polite in the moment. We're exercising tolerance in our own myopic way. We're living and letting live. But at what cost? He says, not one I'm willing to pay. So that's an evangelistic atheist. I love the guy. Because he's basically saying, of course Christians are trying to reach us. It's their job. They believe it's their moral duty. He gets it. So we're in this series, his story. And we're in Abraham's journey. And he has an interesting encounter with God that fits this theme well of making sure that we're mediators in the world around us to help people come to know God. Genesis chapter 18, it's on page 12 in the Bible near you, if you wanna grab a Bible near you. Genesis chapter 18, this is one of the more controversial stories in all of the scriptures because it ultimately is dealing with uh, sexual behaviors in the world around us. Genesis chapter 18 ultimately ends up dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not our primary point here. Primary point is what Abraham is trying to do. So Genesis chapter 18, we're gonna begin in verse 16 on page 12. Genesis 18, 16 on page 12. Then the men rose up from there. Now these men actually, they're angels. One of them is likely actually Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. We'll talk about that in a moment. Three individuals had visited Abraham and Sarah, and he is describing them here as these men. The men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, now the Lord here is one of the men, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now, see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned from there, away from there, and went toward Sodom, and Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, so he recognizes there's this impending judgment. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to, stay the righteous, or to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. For far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I'll spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. little self-deprecation there. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. I love Abraham negotiating. This is almost funny, even though it's very serious. Suppose they're just lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. 
He spoke to him again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And then he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He said, I won't destroy it on account of the 20. Then Abraham said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once, like I'm almost done here, God. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 10. As soon as he'd finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. Abraham returned to his place. Just three quick points here. Two of them that kind of give us the context and then one about what I want to talk about. First, God visits Abraham and confirmed the promise of Isaac, a son through Sarah. Now this is earlier in the chapter. As part of Abraham's faith journey, we know that God had promised to make him a nation. And this is going to tie into uh, this conversation that he has with God. So God promises to make Abraham a great nation. We know that his wife, Sarah, was infertile. They'd been together for many, many decades. She had not had a baby. And eventually God says, you're going to have a child, Abraham. Sarah and Abraham thought, well, it can't be through Sarah. So her handmaid had the child, her servant girl, basically. And God said, that's not what I had in mind. But Sarah is postmenopausal. And God wanted to create faith in both Abraham and Sarah. So God is ready to do a miracle here. And so he gives them a baby that's in process, hasn't been born yet. But these three angels or men uh, come to appear to Abraham and Sarah and they reiterate this promise that Abraham is going to be a nation. He's going to be a blessing to other nations. Ultimately, we know that in that blessing, the Savior will come. So last week, we talked about their struggle to simply believe God's promises about this child. Abraham, uh, chapter 18, three men come to Abraham's camp. Now, when you read the beginning of chapter 18, which I didn't read, it says the Lord appeared to him. And then it says three men were standing opposite him. So now the, the primary belief, if you read a bunch of commentaries on this, the primary view would be that there were two angels plus God. And often it's believed that this would be Jesus before he came to earth as Jesus. So the second person in the Trinity and two angels. We're speculating a little bit, but it keeps talking about three, and once in a while we'll talk about the Lord. So either it's the Lord, God, appearing kind of as three men, three angels delivering his message. I don't believe that because it keeps referring to God as though he's there with him, so I think there's a good chance this was Jesus plus two other angels. But people don't agree on that. So they provide commentary about Sarah's upcoming pregnancy, that it's going to be Isaac. And here's why that's important. Second point, God's purpose for Isaac was to become a mediatorial nation as a witness and blessing to the world. Can I get that second point up there, Dave? God's purpose for Isaac was to become a mediatorial nation as a witness and blessing to the world. So that's where this is coming in. That's how the birth is tied in because that we'll talk about what the angels say to each other in a moment. So God has come to visit the cities of the plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, and several other cities as, a, as sort of a to check out their moral condition. Now, it wasn't a necessary trip because God is sovereign. He sees the world but I believe he did this so that Abraham would be a part of this process. So he comes to visit the cities of the plain to check out their moral condition. 
the key here and the connection to Isaac is this section looks back on Sarah's pregnancy and looks forward to what their child is going to become, which we see here in Genesis 18, uh, verses 17 to 19. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. So this promise of a baby, Isaac, is going to become this nation. So it's all tied together. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children, Isaac, and then the rest eventually, and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. What has he spoken about him? That he would be a blessing to the whole world. Genesis chapter 12, when God spoke to Abraham, he basically is saying, he's talking about Abraham and eventually Israel's mediatorial purpose. They are going to be a light to the world. That's the way the prophets described Israel. In the Old Testament, God's plan was to take Israel and have them in this, you know, hotly contested piece of semi-arid land on all the major trade routes in the known world. He's going to have this small nation be able to defend itself and be blessed by God and be a light to the world between all the major continents that were in that part of the world. And so people would come to know there is a true God. And actually for a while, especially during David and Solomon's reign in particular, Israel actually functioned that way. People came to see the great temple of Solomon to learn about his God. That was the plan, but in Genesis, we don't have a nation. We have a guy who's got a wife named Sarah, and their first child is going to be the beginning of this whole process of becoming a nation. So God is saying, basically, Abraham is going to eventually become this nation. It's a reference to Jesus' purpose in salvation as well. Eventually, Jesus is going to come through Israel, and he's going to be a savior to the world. So God is basically saying, Abraham is a gift to the world because salvation is going to be through Abraham's family, if you will. He's the key. So God says in the passage we read to the two angels, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? which is the physical destruction of the cities of the plain. See, God knows Abraham's future lineage is going to be a light to the world, a savior for the whole world. So God is saying to his angels with Abraham, why not include him now? Why not get him involved? Why not have Abraham included in what will eventually become a reality that he will be, his people will be a channel of salvation to the world. So God is with Abraham and two angels basically saying, it's kind of his business. It's Abraham's business. What we're going to do here, because through Abraham is going to come the nation that blesses the world, and through Abraham is going to come the Savior that blesses the world. So this is sort of Abraham's business. Let's include him now in this process because his people are in this business. So they told him. Likely Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, is talking. This is kind of interesting. Think of a little time warp here. Jesus, if there is a member of the Godhead there, member of the Trinity, likely Jesus, before he's Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is talking to his great, 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 great grandfather. Think about that. Before he's born into the human family. A couple thousand years before he enters humanity. Second person of the Trinity is talking to great, great, great granddaddy. 
pretty interesting. But Abraham is told of this coming judgment, and he's not happy. And he goes into rescue mode. Now, it's unclear what his motivation is, and I'm gonna, I, I, you could take some, you could argue with me about this, and you might be right. The language seems to be an attempt to spare everybody for the sake of the righteous. But that might have just been the argument Abraham is making. I think it's possible he's trying to spare everybody. I think Abraham is trying to spare all of his neighbors in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's using the argument of, if there's a few righteous people there, do it on their account. The reality is the righteous were pulled out of the city before the destruction anyway. I think Abraham is trying to rescue all of his neighbors in that argument. Which brings us to the third point. Abraham intercedes for a broken world, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is not a sermon about homosexuality, but this is a sermon about God's judgment and our place in it. But the clear words of scripture in chapter 19, verse 24, basically says that fire came down from heaven and destroyed these cities of the plain. Now, you can find all kinds of people in my position and all kinds of churches in Calgary and all across North America that would argue that this is ancient religious myth. That God would never have destroyed these cities over sexual choices and practices. And the accusation would be that this kind of discussion only leads to judgment and homophobic tendencies in religious culture. And I think our position should be, we love everybody. We don't want to see anybody under God's judgment. But we don't disagree with it, or we don't agree with everybody about everything, especially in the world we live in. But I want to give you some information about this part of the world and the geological record, which is pretty indisputable. First, this comes from a Christian source. Across Tal El Hammam, so this is basically the city area there, archaeologists found widespread evidence of an intense conflagration that left the bronze middle-aged city in ruins. They found scorched foundations and floors buried under nearly three feet of gray ash, as well as dozens of pottery sherds covered with a frothy, melted surface. The glassy appearance indicates they were briefly exposed to temperatures in excess of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the approximate heat of volcanic magma, such evidence suggests the city and its environs were catastrophically destroyed. Well, that's kind of interesting and scary and sad. Say, but is that really what this story is? Is that, is that really this, this area, Sodom and Gomorrah? All right, let me give you a non-Christian source. Forbes, F-O-R-B-E-S, Forbes. Stephen Forbes organization. Not Christian at all. I mean, he might be, but the magazine isn't. New research finds that a powerful air burst from a meteor colliding with the atmosphere may have wiped out a bronze civilization along the north side of the Dead Sea some 3,700 years ago. Well, the findings come from the excavation of Tal El Hammam, which we mentioned earlier, archaeological site in Jordan. Many believe that the same place was once known as Sodom. 200 square miles was affected. The soil was destroyed in that area and was infertile for six to 700 years, according to archaeologists. They theorized it covered the area with a superheated brine of anhydrite salts, 
which explains actually the Dead Sea today where pretty much nothing can survive in it. Here's another article from a non-Christian source. Uh, I believe this would be physics, but phys.org, astronomy and the space site. A meteor that exploded in the air near the Dead Sea 3,700 years ago may have wiped out communities, killed tens of thousands of people, and provided the kernel of truth to an old Bible story. The area is modern-day Jordan in a 25-kilometer-wide circular plain called Middle Gore. Most of the evidence for this event comes from archaeological evidence excavated at the Bronze Age city of Tel Ahamam, located in that area, which some scholars say is the city of Sodom. Alternatively, and this is what I have always believed, I've been wrong, but this is what I have typically believed, I actually thought it was along a fault line and petrochemical stuff was sort of spewed into the air more like a volcano. But that's probably not the case. Either way, pottery was melted to glass, which takes 4,000 degrees Celsius, and rock was formed that requires 12,000 degrees. Something happened in that part of the world that we wish had not happened probably was the meteor burst that's the greatest scientific evidence, and a meteor burst is not an uncommon thing. There's a couple of them that happened in the last couple hundred years. One of them happened in Siberia in 1908, where a meteor doesn't get quite to land and bursts above the earth and showers the earth with this sort of uh, stuff. The dirt says that this happened. The angels visited Sodom and Lot, who was living there. The men of Sodom propositioned them as they were in human form. It got a little violent, and the next day the city was destroyed as the family of Lot fled. But before that is our passage where Abraham pleads for God's judgment to be stayed. Since the righteous were rescued anyway, I believe Abraham was trying to save those cities and the people in them. And so then you get in this, I'll move to a little lighter moment here, sorry. Then you get to Abraham's argument with God, which is, which is really interesting. I love his motivation, his tactics. We have all experienced this with our children. You know, it's like if you can give an inch, you, know, you give an inch to take a mile, and that's exactly what Abraham does with God. He says, God, would you stay your judgment? If there's 50 righteous people in this city, would you just stay your judgment for the sake of the righteous? Now, I, again, I believe he's doing it for the sake of all because the righteous didn't stay there anyway. And God says, yes. And then Abraham starts off you know, a little bit at a time where he says, well, should five people make a difference? In other words, he doesn't just go from 50 to 45. Or he says, well, really, we're only talking about five people now, so should five make a difference? And he says, God, just do the math, 45. And God says, yes, for 45 will save the city. Well, now Abraham is emboldened. I mean, he's like a child. He's like, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's go by tens now. So he says, God, would you go to 40? Yes, then 30, 20, 10, and then God left. He'd had enough. But there weren't 10 righteous there. And the next day, those cities were destroyed in a miraculous way, which we know now has a natural, sort of a natural cause, but in a miraculous way as well. The dirt doesn't lie. But Abraham tried to get in its path he tried to get between God's judgment and his neighbors. He didn't agree with their lifestyles. 
His nephew Lot's living down there. He pitched his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He had the better land down there. It was a very fertile valley. Abraham didn't agree with it, but he didn't want him destroyed. And that's our job, everyone's job, to get people out of a path of future judgment, to help them find Jesus. There are things in the Bible about the future of people who are outside of Christ that I wish were not in the Bible. I wish it wasn't true. I wish there is a happy ending for all of humanity outside of faith. I wish universalism had greater credibility and everyone gets to heaven on the merits of Jesus whether they find him in this life or not. I wish Jesus didn't say it. I wish Jesus were wrong. but he's not, he's God, and I'm not, and you're not. We shouldn't want anyone to experience judgment. Outside of faith. And those churches that say God hates people People deserve this. Shame on them for not representing the love of God to a broken and lost humanity. We don't have to agree about everything. But we have to love people and hope and pray and try to get them to see that there is truth, there is morality, that God designed us and our best lives are lived honoring his principles. But we shouldn't want anyone to experience the wrath of God, ever. So, a couple apps as we close. First, God has chosen to use us as his mediators to guide others to himself. Can God save people without us? Absolutely, absolutely he can do that. Does he? Not normally. Now there are some, you say, well I know an exception to that. There are, and actually this is true, there are Muslims who have like visions of Jesus, which is very fascinating. It's a miraculous thing and it's happening, I think about a third of Muslim conversions are from miraculous visions of Jesus that lead to an investigation in the life of that person where they actually find Christ. But I'm guessing along the way they probably have to find a Bible that somebody printed and tries to get to them and along the way they're probably gonna run into some Christians as well. God typically says he's gonna use us. It's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. He's chosen to use us. We're plan A and there really isn't a plan B. First Corinthians says that God has given us what? The ministry of reconciliation, of bringing two enemies together, God and people outside of Christ. In that sense, they're at enmity with each other. God loves us outside of Christ, but we're still at enmity. The sin problem is between us. They need to find Jesus. We've been given that ministry of reconciliation. A thousand years ago, a group of Vikings led by Eric the Red set sail from Norway for the vast Arctic landmass known as Greenland. It was largely uninhabitable. The Norse colonies in Greenland were law-abiding, economically viable, fully integrated communities. They numbered about 5,000 at their peak. They lasted for 450 years and then they disappeared. We think of Vikings as seafaring raiders. They thought of themselves as farmers and ranchers. Owning and eating cattle was a status symbol. And after Greenland was deforested for homes and pasture land, and the fertile but thin soil was grazed into oblivion, Greenland's wind and water began to carry away the topsoil, and the Norse people 
began to starve. Fishing would have been a simple solution to feed themselves, yet all archaeological evidence suggests that the Norse would rather starve than eat a fish. Well, I actually understand that thinking with some fish. Why would a society that was sitting on top of the richest food source the ocean has to offer nearly starve to death? In his book, Collapse, How Societies Choose or Fail to Succeed, Jared Diamond argues that when societies fail, it's typically due to not some cataclysmic event, but to something much simpler. Societies fail because they turn inward. They perpetuate their cultural model at all costs, and they try to hold on and survive. And that's what happened to the Vikings in Greenland. They had a cultural taboo against eating fish. It simply wasn't done. So when archaeologists looked through the ruins of the Western settlement, they found animal bones left in the debris. They found the bones of newborn calves, meaning that the Norse in that final winter had given up on the future and they were eating the newborn calves. They found toe bones from cows equal to the number of cow spaces in the barn, meaning that the Norse ate their cattle down to the hoofs. They found the bones of dogs covered with knife marks, meaning in the end they ate their pets. There is nothing here about cats. I'm not sure how that fits into this story. But you know what they didn't find? Fish bones. No fish bones. Right up until they starved to death, they never lost sight of what they stood for. We don't eat fish. Their beliefs killed them. Think about that. They're next to one of the richest food sources on earth, and their beliefs killed them. Today, I don't think this is a shock to you, it's the belief system of the world around us that is just breaking our world and killing us and causing so much confusion and pain in people's lives. And we have a responsibility to get in the way of that, to be a voice, to be a light, to be a conscience. Second, the church is responsible to create a culture that accommodates a mediatorial role. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, one of my favorite scriptures, is Paul talking about being all things to all men so you can reach some. The point is how he recognized that his presentation of the gospel had to be adaptable to the different audiences he ran into. And if you study the life of Paul, he gives a very different sermon when he's talking to non-believers who aren't Jewish in their historical past compared to Jews who are non-believers because he understood they had different contexts, they had different needs. He presented the gospel in a different way. My favorite story about that is when Jesus is on his way to the cross and he clears the temple. You know, right before the crucifixion, within a week of the crucifixion, he goes in the temple and he is so mad. And what he was mad about was the institution of his day that was intended to be a light to the world, that was the center of Israel's worship, presenting the true God was broken. And it wasn't helping people to find God. And God was furious. And he cleared the temple and he spent the rest of the week performing miracles and healing people there and teaching them. We are the institution, churches, that teach the gospel, that teach the Bible, are the institutions today that need to function in that mediatorial role, which means we have to continue to shape our culture as a church to do that. Lovingly and respectfully, church is not about you. Church is about the people who aren't yet here. Yes, it's about you in the sense that we teach the Bible and you learn and hopefully you grow. But the culture of the church always has to lean and ask the question in our worship, in our teaching, in our ministry offerings, in everything we do, who will this reach? 
Who is outside the camp? Who needs to be in the camp? And how do we have to adapt our ministries, not our beliefs, but our ministries and our styles to get the people outside of the camp, come into the camp, and learn about our God? And finally, we're all responsible as individuals to function in a mediatorial role in our own lives. Who are your friends? Who are my friends? And really, the more important question, who should they be? Who should your friends be? Every one of us have people in our lives where we are probably their greatest hope of finding Jesus because our position in their lives. Not somebody in another pew, not even the church. You are the church in the world, and you are their best chance because of your working relationship, because you know what they've been through as an individual, because of your proximity and your family or something. You are their best chance. Let's not go through life unconnected to God's great purpose of redemption. Who are the people in our lives that can best be reached by a relationship with you or with me? We are all responsible to function in that role. God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. And this is a hard passage. It's something we kind of wish hadn't happened and wasn't a reality in our faith history. But we believe it did because it's a part of your word. And the dirt in that part of the world screams out that your word is true. I pray that you would help us to be like Abraham, where we see a path of judgment in people's lives, in all people's lives. It was in our own life as well. We're outside of faith in Jesus and we want to get in the way. We want to reach people. We want them to know what we know and to find forgiveness of sins and healing and peace in their lives. I pray that you would help us to function in that way as a church, as families, as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.